Well, good evening, LCM. Thank you for bearing with us while we worked out a couple technical difficulties. We're all on board tonight. You guys ready? Yeah. Thanks. We are pleased to report that fruitful ministry is still ongoing in Romania as we speak. There is even the possibility that we may worship with some of our Romanian brothers at this year's One Association. On a related but different note, we are clearly living in strange times. Strange times of political unrest, of civil unrest, of FBI raids, unexplainable illnesses, even here in this room, and just general uncertainty about a great many matters. We want to do something tonight. Is that all right with you? Yes. Well, good, because we were going to anyway. We want to declare that we have never been more certain about the truth and power of God's word. Amen. See, the kingdom of God has not been stifled in any way by these adversities. In fact, it's expanding at a rapid pace all around the world, even as we speak right now. The word of God stands alone as the absolute truth, and its power is evidenced in all who hold to it, no matter their background. So we are currently 58 days from the One Association Conference, and one-third of the way through a time of re-evaluation, refinement, and resolution to the end of seeing the work of God completed. It has been the great delight of our hearts to watch you lay a foundation for the work despite your fear of the surrounding peoples. It's been our great delight to see you devote yourself to the word, observe the word, and teach others to do the same. Tonight you will begin to see the effects of a life wholly devoted to the completion of the work. You will see men of God standing on the word together in one accord, shoulder to shoulder. Church, we can hear the cadence of our Father's pace picking up, and we will match that pace. Tonight... We're going to be covering chapters two and three. That's because, church, we're not looking for the minimum. Instead, we're looking for the maximum that can be accomplished in this life. We're in a time of recalibration. Recalibrating our individual callings, tasks, and priorities so that they can be unified into one singular vision with many parts. When brothers unify together, our potential is multiplied exponentially. As we begin our review, remember what has led up to the beautiful display that you will see in tonight's chapter. All right, let's take our first slide. You should be very familiar with this, but we review it for a reason, that you will never forget that Ezra means help and that Nehemiah means Yahweh comfort. Yahweh has consoled or the comfort of God, coming from two roots, comfort and Yahweh. To refresh your memory, Zerubbabel's name meant seed of Babylon. Adonai sent help and now comfort to the seed that was born in Babylon, but is now back in the land of Israel. We saw through the help of God how all 12 tribes were unified and purified of Gentile influence. Now we will see the comfort of God at work. See what we're doing? 
the comfort of God at work in a people who are in distress and disgrace, but are greatly loved by Yahweh. Now our next slide should remind you of what it costs to bring about that very comfort. So you guys can see, Nehemiah means Yahweh has consoled or consoles. Nehemiah 1.4 taught us something about what it would be to produce this comfort. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So you should remember, Nehemiah introduced himself in chapter 1 as a man deeply grieved over the condition of God's people and as eager to do whatever it took to change their state. This puts him in personal anguish and mourning. However, this evening, you will get to see the effects of that kind of devotion to the Lord. Now remember that despite the fact that Nehemiah did not introduce himself as someone great, right. he did indeed possess a unique standing within the Persian Empire. Mm. Our next slide is Nehemiah the cupbearer. Oh yeah. yeah. Extra biblical references that mention the office of cupbearer in the Persian court have revealed that this was a position second only in authority to the king. Whoa. Nehemiah was not only the chief treasurer and keeper of the king's signet ring, but he also tasted the king's food to make sure no one had poisoned it. And on the bottom, the cupbearer, in later Achaemenid times, was to exercise even more influence than the commander-in-chief. So what we read last week is that Nehemiah penned his own introduction. And after, he highlighted God's people, God's character, and his own yearning for the well, their well-being. He then let you know that, oh, by the way, I was cupbearer to the king. Yeah. A cupbearer, despite its modern connotation, was the highest position in the Persian Empire. In effect, Nehemiah was much like Joseph or Mordecai before him. Now this next slide is getting more and more important every week that passes by. Until I so order. In his reply to the king, the king actually strengthened the position of the Israelites by leaving open the possibility that their work might resume later by his permission. This of course did happen later on under the leadership of Nehemiah. In this story, the king did search the archives and found that Jerusalem had been powerful at one time. What an encouragement this must have been to Ezra's original readers to recall the years of David and Solomon and to know that even a pagan king acknowledged the sovereignty of their empire centered at Jerusalem. The king commanded that the building project stop until I so order. This was the same king who later in 444 BC changed this edict and allowed Nehemiah to return and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah 2, what we're going to be reading together tonight. However, the immediate result was a forced cessation of the building activity because the enemies used force to back up a legal, legal document from the Persian king. So remember, guys, King Artaxerxes is the same king from Ezra 4 who issued a temporary cease and desist order on the building of the city and the building of the wall. Thankfully, the order was issued with a clause stating until I so order, so that the king could investigate the matter himself later on. King Artaxerxes at some point became personally acquainted with Ezra 
and was impacted by Ezra's bold proclamation of the law. He told the king in Ezra 8.22, The gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. Do you think that got the king's attention? This relationship with Ezra paved the way for King Artaxerxes to recognize Nehemiah's God-given task and send him to Jerusalem as well. This was no doubt the sovereign hand of God at work in Israel's historical context for the good of God's people and for the good of Jerusalem. Now with that being said, it is remarkable to see the impact that the Jewish men and women like Daniel, Mordecai, Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah had on these pagan kings. Okay, so with that in mind, we're going to revisit Old Faithful. Yeah. Look at that slide. She Beautiful. So starting from the left side, we have 70 years of captivity that extend through the first wave of return with Zerubbabel. When was the temple completed? By 16. So that finishes the 70 years of captivity, bringing us to the second wave with Ezra. And then finally, the third wave, where our blue box rests tonight in Nehemiah. It's worth noticing our prized red circle there, noting Esther. All these things that we've been studying are happening in a contemporary period pretty close to each other. But we're about in the 440s tonight, and you can see that displayed in our charts. So you are welcome for helping you take all of this history and put it in a linear fashion mm-hmm. so you can understand what we're reading and when we're reading about it. Yeah, thank you, Pastor Nick. It's uh, everyone tonight, just a brief aside, hug Pastor Nick because he has devoted countless hours into putting these slides together, especially tonight, today. It's, it's supernatural. We're going to have fun tonight. Yeah. So, Uh, In keeping with our review, it's important to remember as we see the third and final wave commence tonight that all of the work ahead is built upon the foundation already laid by the ministry of Zerubbabel and Jeshua in the heart of the nation and Ezra's work in the soul of the nation. Tonight you will see that the Holy Spirit is once again stirring up the hearts of Israelite men, officials, and even the king of Persia. This third wave will commence by the same supernatural power that brought about the first two waves. Amen. Saints, tonight you will see that once again men of God will take their stand upon the original promises found in the Torah. Adonai in his faithfulness will never forsake his covenant with the people of Israel, with the land of Israel, or the one city where he caused his name to dwell. That being Jerusalem, the city of David. Each wave of return should be rightly viewed as a continued sign of Adonai's grace towards Israel, as John 1.16 says. For we have all received from his fullness one gracious gift after another. You see, the impact of correctly understanding Nehemiah's work to be the continuation of Yahweh's grace, which started in the time of Zerubbabel, cannot be overstated. This slide... Although the books of Ezra and Nehemiah appear as two separate works in our English Bibles, they were originally two parts of a single work, and they should be studied together as a single whole. Not only is ancient Jewish tradition clear about this, the division into two books being probably 
an innovation by the Christian church. What do you say, definitely? But, more importantly, the contents of the books themselves demonstrated. In particular, the second half of Nehemiah serves as a climax to all that has gone before, not least the work of Ezra, as his prominence in Nehemiah 8 makes clear. Although Nehemiah 1.1 obviously starts a new section in the work, it marks no more of a break in the narrative than does Ezra 7.1, where Ezra himself is first introduced. So in many ways, the work of Nehemiah was the aim of Adonai through the labors of Zerubbabel and Ezra. This makes Nehemiah a type of Christ in that his work is viewed as the culmination of all that which came before him. Just as Romans 10.4 says, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Come on. Now next, we want to review a familiar slide from last week as you engage with the effect and progression of the word and its three-part holistic function in mankind. This is our slide on Tanakh. How many of you guys know that Tanakh is an acronym? Yeah, it's made up of three letters, a Tav, a Noon, and a Kav. So, starting with the Tav, this is the Torah, the law, and this stands for the heart. The Noon represents the Nevi'im, the prophets, representing the soul. And the Kav stands for the Ketuvim, the writings, representing strength. All three of these components can be seen in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. The Tanakh was given to Israel and for Israel. Praise God that we have been allowed to participate. The revelation of God's word always starts by transforming the heart then warning the soul, and finally, it is expected to produce action by the means of your strength. The word of God is always aimed at right action. Jesus is the perfect demonstration of right action and how to utilize one's strength because his heart was perfectly inclined toward God and his soul was in perfect agreement with God. Nehemiah, in a very similar way, represents the fruit of all the work before him. He is a demonstration of what one's strength should be used for. So finally, before we jump into our two chapters for this evening, let's review our placement in history using this slide. We're going to work down the right side. Yeah. So the third siege of Jerusalem that destroyed the temple, you know what to do, in 586 B.C. The Persian conquest of Babylon occurred in 539 B.C. Zerubbabel and his companions returned under the Edict of Cyrus in 539 B.C. The temple was completed in 516 B.C., which was 70 years after its destruction. So Zerubbabel, Haggai, and Zechariah were all working in the 23-year period between the Edict of Cyrus and the completion of the temple. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the 450s B.C. to reform the people and teach them the Torah. And Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem in the 440s B.C. to rebuild the wall and the city. So stay with me as we work down the left side of the slide. You'll notice that around 538 B.C., 
Zerubbabel and his companions returned to Israel under the edict of Cyrus so that they could begin rebuilding the temple. Somebody say decree number one. Decree, decree number, number one. one. They began working on the temple in 538, but the work stalled for about 17 to 18 years. Thankfully, Haggai and Zechariah stirred the people back yes. up into action in about 520. With the work underway again and aided by these prophets, it was completed in the year 516 B.C. As you slide down the scale, almost 60 years, you will come to our second wave, where Ezra returned in 458 to begin the reformation work necessary for the remnant of the 12 tribes to be holy, pure, and spotless as God intended. Somebody say, second edict. Second edict. As you slide down our blue box, you will come to Nehemiah's arrival in Jerusalem, roughly 13 years after Ezra's arrival. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and the city. He receives a different kind of edict. He does this to secure Jerusalem so that the city will fully function as it did once in the days of Solomon. Come on. Nehemiah's first leg of the work lasts for roughly 12 years. That's him just getting started. As he faces opponents from within the city and from without of the city. Nehemiah eventually affects reform in the city while establishing the security and paving the way for Messiah, who would later walk into Jerusalem itself. So saints, we have two chapters to cover. At this point, we're going to pray, and then we're going to read through the text. Is there a man of God that would like to pray before we cover two whole chapters in the Word tonight? Father, we thank you for tonight. Lord, what a glorious opportunity pastor would take us through chapter 2 <laughs> and chapter 3. Take a deep breath. Yeah, exactly. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. 
The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the uh, Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. Oh, wow. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. Amen. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. Yeah. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Elisha, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zephur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Asenaah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uri, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Baana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulder to the work under their supervisors. The Yeshanana, the Yeshanana gate was repaired by Joyada, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Besodiah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Malatia of Gibeon and Jadon of Mernoth, places under the authority of the governor of the Trans-Euphrates. Uzael, son of Parhaiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephaniah, son of Hur, ruler of half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Harumpha made repairs opposite his house, and Hattush, son of Hashabaniah, made repairs next to him. Malkajah, son of Harim, and Hashab, son of Bahath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Yeah. Yeah. Shalem, son of Halohash, ruler of the house district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanun and the residents of Zenoah. They rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. They also repaired 500 yards of the wall as far as the Dung Gate. The Dung Gate was repaired by Malkijah, son of Rekha, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim. 
he rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalom, son of Kol Hoset, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the Pool of Siloam by the king's garden, as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of the district of Beth Zur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the heroes. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Rehum, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of the district of Kila, carried out repairs for the district. Next to him, the repairs were made by their countrymen under Benui, son of Hinadad, ruler of the other half-district of Kedah. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabek, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Next to him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, repaired another section from the entrance of Elijah's house to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priest from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashem made repairs in front of their house. And next to them, Azariah, son of Maasiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Next to him, Benui, son of Hinadad, repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle and the corner. And Bilal, son of Uzziah, worked opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Pedaiah, son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel made repairs up to the point opposite the water gate towards the east and the projecting tower. Next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section from the great projecting tower to the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priest made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Emmer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants, opposite the inspection gate, and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. Well, we certainly hope that you guys have been enjoying our reviews. If you're paying attention during our reviews, you'll notice that a lot of things went into motion to make this possible. What we're reading about tonight is the culmination of everything that God did, starting in Cyrus, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, working with Zechariah, Haggai, Ezra, and now we see the culmination of everything that God was aiming at for his people. If you're paying attention during our reviews, you will see the span of time that it took for all of this to occur. And you might be looking at that and thinking, wow, Jerusalem was not built in a day. It took some serious work from a lot of different pieces, a lot of different players involved, opposition in different time frames, but they're getting it done. Look, you can read 18 hours of commentary to get the reviews that we're giving you in about 18 minutes. But this is becoming a blessing for us because it's showing us the entire scope of what's happening in tonight's chapter. You guys want to dig into that? Yes. All right, let's pick up in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of 
when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So tonight we're going to move at a brisk pace so that we are able to retain the larger context and flow of chapter 2 and chapter 3. So that means when we pause on a verse, it is because there is something we must understand as it relates to the rest of the content tonight. To start with here in verse 1, did you notice the month change? We're in the month of Nisan tonight. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hachaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. So we started in Kislev, now we're in Nisan. We want to show you a slide from the BKC. Look at this. Nehemiah's tenacity. Four months went by before Nehemiah's opportunity came. That's right. Four months. From Kislev, which you saw in verse 1-1, that's November, December time frame, to Nisan, which is March or April. Nisan was still in Artaxerxes' 20th year, because the regnal year started in Tishri, which was in September or October. So on other nights, we have covered the concept of a regnal year, and we will not retread that ground this evening, other than to say that the 20th year corresponds to the number of Artaxerxes' reigning years, not the calendar year. What is important to understand is that Nehemiah has been in a state of mourning, fasting, and praying to Yahweh for four months at this point all over the condition of Jerusalem. Remember that Nehemiah chapter 1 said, I'm going to read verse 3 and 4. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah was certainly moved in this moment hearing the news about Jerusalem. But his fervency was not a momentary event. Come on. He understood the gravity of Jerusalem's state and the necessity of Jerusalem in Adonai's redemptive plan. He spent the last four months, say four months. Four months. Four months waiting for Adonai to present the perfect time to bring the subject up to the king of Persia. In many ways, this is very similar to Esther's first and second banquet, where she waited to voice the concern that weighed on her until God made it clear that it was time to voice it. In Nehemiah's case, he was not required to wait a few days, but instead he had to wait four months. For four months, he has carried the weight of knowing Jerusalem knowing that Jerusalem needs comfort for four months. For four months, he's performed his duties and continued to cry out to God for Jerusalem's sake. For four months, he has awaited, he's waited for God's precise timing, and that time has now drawn near. Are you beginning to get a feel for what has been weighing on Nehemiah? Yes. He's showing up to work, performing his services every day. <laughs> See, while Nehemiah is faithfully awaiting the right time, there's a much larger scope that is at play, and it's one that Adonai and his sovereignty has arranged. I have a slide for you that is titled, Historical Facts of Importance. Chapter 2 of Nehemiah is happening almost exactly 
70 years after the completion of the temple in 516 BC. Chapter 2 in Nehemiah is happening almost 100 years after the first return from exile under Zerubbabel in 539 or 538. It's 95 years to be exact. 70 years since the temple has been completed. Nearly 100 years since the original decree of return. And Jerusalem is still in desolation. Are you beginning to understand why the appearance of Nehemiah is an extraordinary act of grace from Adonai? Yeah. See, if Yahweh is willing to wait centuries for his people to be restored to what he had always promised, how might we learn from Nehemiah's example of faithfulness over a few months? So you might learn that God will make a man wait for the same thing that God's been waiting for. (laughs) He'll give him the revelation and let him toil in that revelation because God's been toiling in it for a while. You see, the truth is, our king is working through generations and thousands of years of human history to ensure that his will is accomplished. Psalm 90 verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. And the apostle Peter, in his second epistle, he reiterates this same concept. So next time we are struggling to stay faithful in our God-given mission, For more than a few weeks, we should remember the patience of God who has ordered our path. He's been waiting for the things that he's called you to a lot longer than you've been waiting for them. And he wants you to labor with him in toil. Tonight you will see that faithful men stand up. And you will see that men rise to the occasion in a moment to do what is right. But you need to remember that those special moments were predicated upon months of faithfulness beforehand. Come on. Pick up in verse 2. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. <laughs> okay. So to start with, we just want to come out and tell you, we are amazed. We're encouraged. We're also very convicted by the character of Nehemiah. His track record with the king You can see here in this verse, his track record is so consistent that the king himself could easily recognize that something was troubling Nehemiah. And he knew that it must be something important. So, we have a fair question to ask you. Would the people in your workplace be shocked to see you unhappy? (laughs) Or would they think very little of it Because your consistent testimony has been unhappiness. Okay, okay, let's put it another way for you. If you walked into your work, let's say this coming Monday morning, and you were beaming with joy, you were delighted to see everybody, you're like, what's going on, everybody? I'm so happy to be here. Would your coworkers look at you and think that something incredible must have happened this past weekend? (laughs) What's gotten into that guy? (laughs) Nehemiah's consistent testimony with the king was a testimony of faithfulness and joy in service. And that is why it stood out to the monarch of the known world when Nehemiah wasn't happy for a single day. Pastor Peyton's going to continue for a minute. But everybody in the room should take a second to consider whether the monarch of the world, as in the eternal king, would notice if you were unhappy one morning. 
See, I think our consistent testimony doesn't match up with the character of the men in the Word nearly in the way that it must for us to do what the men in the Word have done. Nehemiah wasn't just a table waiter, but rather a greatly trusted official in a similar position to Mordecai who preceded him. With the position he held, there came certain expectations that made showing his concern for Jerusalem very dangerous. Oh, yeah? Look at this next slide. The dangers of a bad attitude. Oh. And oh, how I wish we could stay on this topic all night. <laughs> this is from the BKC, our good friends. <laughs> Nehemiah was careful in replying. In fact, he was even afraid. A servant was never to let his negative emotions show before the king. For it might suggest dissatisfaction with the king. That's oh, bad. No. To do so might jeopardize his position or even his life. So Nehemiah understands in this moment that showing his sadness of heart could be misinterpreted by the king as dissatisfaction with the king himself. Big problem. You'll remember from our studies in Esther that interacting with a Persian monarch in an improper way could land you with the death penalty in short order. In this case, you will see that Adonai has moved on the heart of King Artaxerxes, praise God, both in a supernatural way by the means of the Spirit and through the consistent testimony of Nehemiah's service. Artaxerxes is genuinely concerned for the welfare of his friend and chief official, Nehemiah. However, Nehemiah does not know that for sure at this moment. Matthew 5, verses 4 through 5, have an interesting commentary on this subject. Blessed are those who mourn. What has Nehemiah been doing for the last four months? Mourning. For they will be comforted. Or they will be Nehemiah. <laughs> Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And Nehemiah has been mourning rightly and appropriately, and it is leading to the comfort of God. Amen. Nehemiah has exercised godly restraint. Godly meekness for four months now, waiting for Adonai to highlight the right moment. Come on now. And it will yield an inheritance on the earth, namely Jerusalem's reconstruction. Yeah. In your own time, read the Beatitudes. You will see them all on display in the life of the king. Ungratefulness is not any one of them. Now as we jump into verse 3, remember that Nehemiah does not yet know how the king will respond. He's still in suspense. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lie in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So no notice that Nehemiah is in a precise and respectful way when he begins to answer the king with honesty and direct speech. The truth is for Nehemiah, it does not matter how things are going for him personally or for the Persian Empire, if God's people and God's city are in disgrace. This sentiment is echoed as the NIV puts it, why should my face not look sad? The truth is, all the reasons in the world to be happy were of no consequence to Nehemiah as long as the will of Adonai was not done in Jerusalem. We have a slide for you to help you illustrate to help illuminate what Nehemiah said to the king in a more literal sense. This is on the phrase destroyed by fire. This is literally 
Its gates have been eaten by fire. I don't know what that next word is, to be honest with you. The verb eat is used metaphorically to speak of the destruction of the gates by fire. Equivalent usage in English is usually translated as consumed by fire, like you consume a Whataburger, or devoured by fire. So the phrase devoured by fire certainly has a more vivid and visual impact than simply saying that the gates were destroyed by fire. However, there is far more at play here than just a Hebrew idiom, if you will. The Hebrew verb that is being translated destroyed is the Hebrew verb achal, meaning he ate or to eat. This is the same Hebrew verb that is utilized in Deuteronomy 4 as God is revealing his character to Israel. We're going to take a moment to examine this passage and the associated promises that Nehemiah undoubtedly has in mind as he courageously addresses the king. So listen up as I read from Deuteronomy 4, starting in verse 23. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. A jealous God. So literally, what is translated consuming fire is the Lord your God is a devouring fire. It's using the same verb, achal, which means to eat, or in a greater sense, to devour. Not only is this specific language that Nehemiah is utilizing when speaking to the king connected to Deuteronomy chapter 4, the content of the following verses directly pertains to what he is relaying to the king. Let's pick up in verse 25. After you, had cho- you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and provoking him to anger, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. So in the same passage that reveals God as a devouring fire, it's foretold that Israel would fall into idolatry and be scattered among the nations. This has already taken place and is largely the subject of Jeremiah's rebuke just prior to the captivity. What is also promised in the same passage that presents God as a devouring fire is a promise that's contained in verse 29 through 31. What does that pick up in 29? I want you to retain the connection. He's saying our gates and city walls were devoured by fire. He is referencing Deuteronomy 4 where God says, I am that devouring fire. And if you sin in idolatry, I will devour your land. But that is not where Deuteronomy 4 stops. But if from there, the place where you were devoured, you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. Remind me, what has already taken place in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah? See, we've had a resurrection in the heart and in the soul. See, we're going to continue. But Deuteronomy 4 is starting with the heart, moving to the soul, with the expectation of strength being what follows. Verse 30, when you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, 
which is where Nehemiah is standing. Then in later days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by oath. So the same passage that presents God as the devouring fire also presents the Lord as the faithful and merciful one who will not abandon Israel or Jerusalem. As Nehemiah is speaking with the king, he's not just emphasizing the destruction that has already been brought on Jerusalem. He is also drawing from the promises and the law about the God who is a devouring fire. His conversation with the king is factually describing the condition of Jerusalem. But it is also laced with the hope of its resurrection even as he speaks. This is because the same God who devoured the city, well, that same God will be faithful to see the city rebuilt. We'd like to show you a single passage out of the Newer Testament that references this concept. It's found in Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. You see, the clear import from the author of Hebrews is that we serve a God who will tear down, shake, burn, devour, eat, everything that does not belong. This same God should be served with reverence and awe because he will also rebuild, reconstruct, and resurrect his servants and his city into his perfect image. Nehemiah has just laid his case before the king in a respectful but brazenly faithful manner. His appeal is not at all resting on the sympathy of the king, but instead he's calling on a higher king. His appeal is on the promises already outlined in the law of the king of the universe. Man, that's exciting, isn't it? Hey, let's pick up in verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. So as you're well aware in this church, we oftentimes find areas where most English translations do not really relay the feel or the design or the original thought that the writer intended. So this chapter, but specifically these verses that we're going through right here, is one of these instances. The NIV dynamically starts verse 4 with, The king said to me. While that is definitely happening, this dynamic translation does not help us understand the actual tone and tense of this story. The verb tense that is being used in this entire chapter, the whole thing, is called and it is used in a narrative. Someone say narrative. narrative. It's a sequential past tense in the order of events, like telling a story. Let's give you an example. Verse 3 should be translated, And then I said to the king. And verse 4 should be translated, And then the king said to me. And then I prayed to the God of heaven. Do you see that tense, the sequential narrative past tense? This is Vaiktol at work. This gives us the feel and tone that this conversation is happening in one moment. And then Nehemiah immediately prays in front of the king. (laughs) By the way, verse 5 picks up after Nehemiah prays and says, And then I answered the king. (laughs) So the larger point is that the series of events cannot be interpreted in the original language to be anything other 
then in rapid succession as in one singular encounter, okay? While it may take many commentators, uh, make many commentators uncomfortable to consider Nehemiah praying right there in front of the king, this points to the bold faith of Nehemiah as well as his preparation over the last how many months? Four, four months. So as Pastor Parsons mentioned, Nehemiah has already been praying for four months up to this point. You know what Nehemiah didn't need? He didn't need three hours to go pray and determine God's will. He didn't need three hours to go summon his courage because he had already sought Yahweh about the matter. As he is standing before the king, he knows what God wants. See, it is likely that the brief prayer while before the king was for the king's heart and the king's response. We have a slide for you. Go Nehemiah's preparations. Obviously, Nehemiah had prepared for this moment. He had prayed for this moment. Besides seeking God's help in prayer, he utilized all the human resources available, including his intellectual capabilities, his past experiences, his accumulated wisdom, his role and position in life, and people with whom he came into contact. In this instance, the very king of the Persian Empire. Right. Now, between the king's question and Nehemiah's answer, the cupbearer breathed a brief prayer to the God of heaven. This short prayer, whatever its unvoiced words, was built on his prayer for four months. No doubt he asked for wisdom in stating his request properly and for a favorable reply from the king. Look, on a related note, the rabbis have no problem with this. They said they stood right in front of him and prayed that God would move his heart <laughs> as he made his request. Look, it will become evident through the course of the chapter that Nehemiah has wisdom and information that directly correlate to his position within the Persian Empire and his four months of preparation prior to speaking with the king. Before we expound a little further on using all of your God-given capacity for the work of God, we would like to remind you what Nehemiah specifically said in his prayer in chapter 1. This is Nehemiah 1.11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. By the way, I was cupbearer to the king. You see, over the last four months, Nehemiah has been praying about this specific event. There is a profound lesson to be had when you recognize a pattern in Nehemiah's life. Nehemiah wrestles with the call of God. He wrestles with the will of God and what is required before Yahweh long before he presents it to man. Yeah. Nehemiah is able to be respectful. He's able to be bold while being respectful. And he's able to be faithful while being respectful and bold before the king of the Persian Empire because he has already met with the king of kings. Amen. And he's been meeting with the king of kings for four months now. See, Nehemiah proves and demonstrates that the right application of our strength stems directly from the submission of our heart and soul to Adonai. So, we're only in chapter 2 so far, but we want to forecast to you how this pattern plays out in Nehemiah's life with a slide. Look at this slide on Nehemiah's prayer life. I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Look at that chain of scripture references. Yeah. Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah 2, Nehemiah 4, 5, 6, 
and 13 all the way through to the end of the book. His request to God had been that he would put it into the king's heart to give him favor. Now he asked the ruler to let him return to the city of his fathers so he could build it. He was answered by both God and man. Nehemiah exemplifies the Ketuvim because he uses all, someone say all, all all of his God-given capacity, his God-given strength in every form. Guys, Nehemiah uses all of the human resources he has available to him. He uses all of his intellectual capabilities. He uses all of his past experiences. He uses all of his accumulated wisdom. He uses his current role and the current position that he has in life. And he also utilizes the relationships that he had, including relationships with the very king of the known world. For Nehemiah, nothing was off the table when it came to obedience to Yahweh. Nothing. None of his resources. He was wholly the Lord's. And he was free as the Lord's ambassador to convey God's will without being hindered by any sort of fear or anxiety. Guys, we must learn to emulate Nehemiah in refusing to let fear or anxiety prevent us from boldly declaring what Yahweh has directed and to use everything at our capacity to do so. Remember, all of this started with four faithful yet agonizing months wrestling and preparing. Let's continue in verse 5. And I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Wow. So before we move any further in the text, it's worth noting that this is the second time Nehemiah has noted where his fathers are buried. Did you catch that? Nearly universally, this is taken to mean that he's from the tribe of Judah and that his family line lived within the city of Jerusalem. Some have speculated that it may be a reference to him being a part of the Davidic line. So we have a a slide to show you why. And I'll do my best to enunciate properly tonight. This is the city where my fathers are buried. Nehemiah's request is made even more personal by identifying the city as the place of my father's sepulchers. This is a reference to his family ancestry and is literally my father's house of tombs. Uh, a, a, help me out with this. Achaemenian. Achaemenian royal tombs were constructed in the form of houses. Nehemiah's use of this phrase probably made the king think of the tombs of his own ancestors. Tob uses the word tombs in place of the more archaic sepulchers. NRSV. NRSV, thank you, uses the more common word graves. The GNT refers to the city where my ancestors are buried, and the NIV says the city where my fathers are buried. Both these versions use natural English expressions without referring explicitly to the tombs tombs that Nehemiah mentions. Unless explicit reference to the burial places is taboo in the receptor culture, the translator should not omit this reference. Can I let you in on something? 
This is the UBS commentary that specializes in looking at Semitic languages. They're basically rebu rebuking the NIV, saying this is a poor translation, what the whole article is about. Without going into great detail regarding the original language, it's important to note that Nehemiah is not simply communicating that his fathers were buried in Jerusalem, i.e. the hole in ground they happened to be put in. No, instead he's communicating where his ancestral tombs are located, i.e. where his family line has an actual grave site with real tombs set apart for. Right. In modern times, people are often buried in places other than where they were born. This was not the case in the ancient world, and in particular within Israel. Each tribe had a God-given allotment that could only temporarily change hands. We don't have time to teach you about the year of Jubilee, but the basic concept is that no more than 50 years would ever go by without the original tribe allotments resetting to the original owners as designated by God. Basic principle being each of the 12 tribes didn't get to choose where they lived. God designated where they lived by their family lineage, which means that they would live, die, and be buried in the same area God had assigned to them. God assigned Jerusalem to the family of Nehemiah. Let's pick up in verse 6. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take? And when will you, when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. So as we learned in the book of Esther, in the ancient Persian culture, it was not customary for the royal family to make public appearances on a regular basis. Did you catch that the queen was sitting right next to the king? Yeah. This is especially true of the queen. It's not customary. With that bit of knowledge in mind, you can conclude that this must have been a special and private event that Nehemiah was a part of. Since the king and queen were both present and interacting with Nehemiah personally. Time will not permit us to rehash all of the Persian customs this evening. We already did that. But further study will teach you that Persian banquets often included multi-course meals, mm. followed by wine being served. Yes. In fact, this was when the Persians would settle in and believed themselves to be the most honest. Here's a slide to refresh your historical palette. Okay, guys. You remember this slide on Persian drinking? Yes. This is one of our favorites. Yeah. In that vein, one custom that both fascinated and appalled the Greeks was the Persian feast. Most of what is known of the Persian feast comes from Greek sources, who describe the opulence of the objects used and the amount of drinking that was an essential part of the proceedings. Essential. Persians lived according to a principle of telling the truth, something that the Greeks begrudgingly admired in them. Wonder why. <laughs> Drinking during feasts had an important social role. They tended to get very drunk because they believed that only in doing so they would tell the truth and be able to effectively settle arguments. <laughs> so, with that being said, when you guys are imagining Nehemiah before the king and the queen, you should picture a private dinner with heavy drinking and a lot of truthful speech. The expectation of Nehemiah would have been for the king to speak bluntly and entirely honestly about how he felt, which makes it all the more exciting yeah. to see how Yahweh had steered Artaxerxes' heart. Yeah, He was pleased. Guys, the word of God uses the word pleased 
it's way different than saying he was willing or he would concede to the idea. No, God had moved on his heart so much that Artaxerxes was pleased with the idea. Wow. Do you love the truth that Adonai can steer a king's heart? Yeah. Even when it's drunk. That sounds like a proverb. It sounds like Proverbs 21. This is Proverbs 21, verse 1. It says, In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him. Remember that this kingdom is silver according to the book of Daniel. Yeah. You remember that? Yeah. Persia is still a Gentile beastly power, but with some redemptive qualities. <laughs> From the time of Cyrus to Xerxes and now to Artaxerxes, it's amazing to see Adonai's hand at work in the heart of these world leaders. He's steering their course. We would like to remind you of a particular moment in the book of Esther. You will see this on the slide. It's Esther 7, verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. Ooh, come on. Once again, the request of a faithful Jew before a Persian monarch will change the course of history yeah. and preserve the lives yeah. of the Jewish people. Praise God. In both cases, the monarch was not willing, but was pleased yeah. to respond. Amen. Let's continue in verse 7, and we're going to pick up a pace so that we can finish. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, so he will give me, give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, by the temple and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy and because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. Now, just remember as we're going through this, he asks for timber to build the gates first. That's going to be important for you to remember later. See, there's a great deal happening in these verses. But to start with, Nehemiah's specific goals are outlined as the gates of the citadel, the city wall, and his personal residence. As we progress... We're going to examine maps that will help all of us visualize exactly what this looks like in the city of Jerusalem. But for now, we would like to emphasize the amount of careful preparation, planning, and forethought that went into Nehemiah's mission. Do we have any planners in the room? Men who like to plan things out? Yeah. Well, you're going I to do. like this. I do. This is Nehemiah's research. Nehemiah then asked for the biggest favor yet. Knowing he would face opposition from his enemies, he requested letters of permission from the king to allow him to pass through the various provinces in the Trans-Euphrates, the large area west, west of the Euphrates River. <laughs> Nehemiah also asked that the king write a letter to Asaph, the man in charge of the king's forest. Nehemiah knew he would need access to timber for rebuilding the gates and the wall, and other parts of the city. The citadel was a fortification to protect the temple. The fact that Nehemiah knew the name of the man in charge of the king's forest near Jerusalem may indicate that he had done some careful research. Yeah. So in addition to his careful preparation, the specific knowledge that he had 
and that he demonstrated is further proof of his position within the Persian Empire. To know all of these things, he's got to have a high pay grade in the empire. Nehemiah knows to ask for a letter to personally give to Asaph, who is the keeper of the king's forest. A table waiter might be aware that, well, I'm going to need timber to rebuild, am I not? But a table waiter would also not likely know the name of the specific man who keeps the timber nearly a thousand miles away from him, right? The king graciously granted the request of Nehemiah. The phrase, the gracious hand of my God was upon me, constitutes the beginning of another wave of Yahweh's favor, much in the same way that it did with Ezra. This specific decree to rebuild has wide and very sweeping ramifications in the word. We want to start by helping you connect this to what already took place in the time of Ezra. So to condense these concepts, we put these scriptures on a slide where you can see it highlighted the gracious hand of his God from Ezra 7, Ezra 8, in the beginning earlier in the chapter, and later in the chapter in verses 22 to 23. So church, at this point, we've seen the supernatural effects under Zerubbabel following Cyrus' decree. We've just walked through the supernatural effects of Ezra following Artaxerxes' first decree. This third decree will complete the work that began in the heart. Say heart. 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 Move to the soul. Say soul. Soul. And now is being realized in the strength of national Israel. Saints, you should remember from our time in Daniel together that there is a unique significance to the decree issued in response to Nehemiah's request. We're going to visit Daniel 9.25 together for a moment. Daniel 9.25 says, Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, Mm. but in times of trouble. Mm. You remember that the issuing of Nehemiah's decree in 445 or 444 B.C. until the arrival of the anointed one or the Mashiach, the Messiah Prince, would be... 483 years. We have a slide that will help place this decree in the historical restoration of national Israel. So you'll remember this slide from our studies in Daniel. The question we asked is which decree is Daniel 9 talking about? When do we start that 483 years? We looked at the decrees and what they were for, and we realized, oh, snap, the decree given to Nehemiah was to rebuild the city. Now, given that in Daniel 9.25, Gabriel said that the decree was to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, it is not possible to consider any decree that involves the temple alone. The correct decree must deal with the city of Jerusalem. Now, secondly, Gabriel said it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. So the decree must concern the city of Jerusalem with facets that define a city like streets and a trench. It is clear in examining the decree that we just read in Nehemiah 2 and the description of what is rebuilt that this decree is the correct and only option when examining Daniel 9. And you have to ask yourself, what did God reveal to Nehemiah in his four months of prayer? Do you think perhaps God revealed to him, oh, there was a man who came before me 
His name is Daniel, and he prophesied this. Well, keep that in your mind as we keep going. Let's turn to verse 9. So I went to the governors of Trans Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Oh, the king did it. Wow, it's a, actually a common misconception that Nehemiah himself requested soldiers and cavalry. The text is very clear here. Nehemiah did not request the escort, but the king himself sent them. Now, why would this be? Well, likely, this is due to Nehemiah's importance to the king. Nehemiah's role within the Persian Empire was worth protecting. In some minor ways, you will see them at play later on in the chapter. We're talking about this escort particularly. Let's continue in verse 10. When Sambalot the Horonite Mm. and Tobiah the Ammonite Mm. official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the, wear, the welfare of the Israelites. These guys. These guys. <laughs> so clearly throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, there's a consistent theme of opposition to every move of God. Yep. Yeah. We'd like to give you a bit of insight regarding Sanballat, who will be a major player in the coming chapters. But first, we have a slide for you on the elephantine papyrus, or the elephantine papyri. Yeah. So this is on the slide here. It's pretty neat that this has been preserved through history, and now we can view it digitally. It's 2,500 years old. <laughs> it's very old. So in the Elephantine Papyri, written in about 407 B.C., that's 37 years after this event that we're reading about, Sanballat was called Governor of Samaria. So it's likely that Nehemiah handed Sanballat one of the letters from the king because Sandal is one of the governors. Ah, go, big boy. That's how we found out. Yeah, so vision how that might look in your head. So once again, time will not permit us to dive deeply into the original language, but there is a Hebrew wordplay going on between the good being brought to Jerusalem and the evil that Sanballat perceived. Put simply, what was good for Israel is always evil in his eyes. And on that, we have a slide for you. You ready? Sanballat, derived from the word Sin, the Akkadian word for the moon god. His name in combination means the moon god has given life. Yikes. Sanballat's name points to his origin and the satanic moon god that he serves, which is why what is good for Israel, he perceives as evil. Ah. There is an ancient connection that continues into modern times, which I could talk about all night. Yep. But whatever is good for Israel is perceived as evil by the worshippers of the moon god, no matter what century it is. That's true. Why don't we move to verse 11? I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there, three days. So on other evenings, we have shown you that this journey is well over 900 miles. On a practical level, some some recovery is warranted upon his arrival. He stays there three days. Also, Nehemiah has a track record of prayerfully evaluating things before he acts. Think of those three days as his time of prayer. Where do I start? And in this case, he took the three days, which is the distance between life and death. Come on. Verse 12. I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Mm. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. Okay, this is really interesting. Because the passage says, I set out with a few men, but I also hadn't told anybody what I was doing. So, the few men who are with him 
are likely the king's soldiers, the escort that he had all the way back from Susa. Because verse 16 also attests to this. Verse 16 later makes it clear that no one in Jerusalem knew what he had arrived there to accomplish. Many of you may be aware that the literal Hebrew for set out is the word kum. That's right. That's strong 6965, meaning to rise up. And you guys will recognize that word. Nehemiah begins by personally rising up on an internal and an external level before addressing anyone in Jerusalem. Boy, that'll preach. So as we move to verse 13, we're going to show you the approximate path that Nehemiah is taking. You guys ready to go on this journey with us? Yes. Let's read verse 13. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Okay, so you're going to want to put your eyes on the screen here, and you're going to want to get to know this map very well, because <laughs> you're going to see it a lot tonight. This is what I was referencing at the beginning of the study that Pastor Nick spent hours, countless hours, organizing this, so you can see the path that Nehemiah is walking on. So here in verse 13, you can see in the middle of the map, we're at the valley gate. And he moves towards the jackal well and the dung gate there in the south. So if you follow the red arrow, you're following the path, and we've labeled it step number one. In light of that, let's go to verse 14. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool. There was not enough room for my mountain to get through. All right, you see our next map? On the bottom right-hand corner, you see him making a turn around the south section of Jerusalem toward the fountain gate and the king's pool. He's getting a little sampling, if you will, of the condition of Jerusalem because he's lived in Susa, and he hasn't seen it. Verse 15. So I went up, by, I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally... I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. So as you can see on the slide, Nehemiah has already gone through the first path, the second path, and now he's turned around and he's going to enter into the same gate that he came out of. At this point, Nehemiah has seen enough and he's about to get busy. Verse 16. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I said, I said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing Ooh, the work there. Come on, we're seeing the first, point in, the first point in time here that anyone other than Nehemiah or Artaxerxes or the soldiers and the escort that he had with him that heard about Nehemiah's purpose. Guys, when it says priests here, who might be in that company of priests listed here? I don't know, it could be Ezra, right? Yeah. yeah, be bold about it. If you think it's Ezra, say it. Ezra! <laughs> Ezra could very well be in this group of priests in this chapter. Let's continue in 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Come on. So after four months of preparation, a nerve-wracking meeting with the king, and 
an over 900 mile journey, three days of contemplation and recovery, and a nighttime survey, Nehemiah is finally announcing why he has arrived. <laughs> He's come to restore the strength and security of national Israel. Oh, Amen. The historical reality is that they are nowhere close to seeing this realized, but they have just unified around this godly vision. Amen. By the way, when the NIV says, let us start rebuilding, the Hebrew is, rise up, kum, kum, and rebuild. The LCM more literal version would say, so they said, let us rise up and let us build. So they strengthened their hands for the good. Come on. Church, what began in Nehemiah personally has affected the believing community so greatly that they have now risen up yes. to the call. Amen. Verse 19 and 20, brother. But when Sambalot the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, <laughs> official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, mm. they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this that you are doing? They asked. Are you rebuilding? Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on modern-day politics between uh, <laughs> Palestinian occupiers. Yeah. But once again, the commonalities of opposition go all the way back to Zerubbabel's time. You should remember from Ezra 4, verse 3, said, but Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the family heads of Israel answered them, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the mm -hmm. God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Yeah. Sam Ballot and Tobiah were listed first. Did you notice that another got tagged on? Yes. Yeah. Yep. He's been added to their number. Ooh, enemies are multiplying. The enemies of God always seem to multiply in proportion to the move of God. <laughs> Once again, we do not have the liberty this evening to go greatly in depth about the original language. But Nehemiah is saying something to the effect of, you have not a share, you have not righteousness, or a memorial in Jerusalem. Nehemiah responds to the opposition in the same fashion that Zerubbabel did before him. Amen. Look, as we begin chapter 3, you're going to notice that there are teams of officials, priests, princes, workmen, and officers that work as a unified body to build the appropriate sections of the wall. Yeah, they do. There's no hired men here. This is the body, this is the family of God working together. Amen. Additionally, you have already seen that Jerusalem, and more specifically the temple, is the heart of national Israel. The text will place a great deal of emphasis on the gates. Mm. Remember Nehemiah said the gates first to the king? Well, that's because the gates are the entrance and exit points to the heart. If Jerusalem is the heart, if the altar and temple is the heart, the gates are the exits and the entrance to that heart. That should remind you of Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. As they began the efforts to restore the strength and security of national Israel, they start with an entrance and exit of the heart. Look, we want to show you a map that we're going to add points to as the next chapter walks us around the restoration of the outer wall. See that map? 
As we walk through chapter 3, we're going to see the progress of the building as it continues on this map. Nehemiah's emphasis is on the outer wall surrounding the temple, the city of David, and the area that is currently inhabited in Jerusalem. You can see that by the striped shaded area right there. The area to the left on the map, as we showed you last week, is still destroyed and it's largely uninhabited. That is that area to the left, and that is what was habited when the Babylonians showed up. As we pick up in Nehemiah 3.1, you will notice the way that various groups of brothers work shoulder to shoulder to see the work completed. Are you guys ready to get into chapter 3? Let's do chapter 3, verse 1. Elisha the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place building as far as the tower of the hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the tower of Hananel. Guys, there are three specific locations immediately in verse 1. This verse starts with a bang. We got building at the sheep gate. We got building as far as the tower of the hundred. We got building as far as the tower of Hananel. Look at this map. Look at this. Look at these three red dots. This is where they started. At the top here. You guys see the sheep gate? Yes. Can you see the Tower of the Hundred in the middle there? Yes. The Tower of Hananel right beside it? Yes. Guys, these red dots represent the progression of the work as listed in verse 1. Now, as we move through chapter 3 together, we're going to continue to show you the circular progression of the repairs. That's right. The Bible actually put this in an incredible order for the reader. And you guys are going to be able to to grasp what is fully going on in chapter 3. We also want to note, before we move on to chapter 2, that you are going to see a pattern emerging from verse 1. Verse 1 mentions the first place where they started the repairs. That was the sheep gate. The repairs throughout this chapter will usually start with a specific gate being built first. Somebody say they started with the gates. They started with the gates. Then, after that, the people will go on to repair the walls between the gates. We're going to come back to this thought later. But for now, you should know that the gate, it's much more than just a simple cattle guard. That's not what the word is talking about here. It's more like a gate house. Something with a roof. Something with walls. More like a fortress. In the ancient world, the gates or gate houses were the most important piece in the defensive structure of a city because they controlled what would go in and what would go out of that said city. We're going to dig into this more later in the chapter, but for now, let's move on to verse 2. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Emri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Haseranah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hathos, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabel, yeah. made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Ba'ana, also made repairs. All right, so there are six sections being built up in these verses. As you can see by the six new red dots on our next slide. Notice that the ones that we've listed already are now green, and what we are talking about in these verses are now highlighted in red. Did you catch Merrimoth there? 
So here's some interesting notes on that. Miramoth, son of Uriah, was the original recipient of the silver, gold, and sacred articles for the house of God brought by the second wave of exiles in Ezra 8.33. Participating in two waves. Yeah. Come on. So the text is deliberate in highlighting the way in which these men were working next to each other. The Hebrew would literally translate to something like, at their hand, and at their hand, and at their hand. Or said in LCM vernacular, shoulder to shoulder. In fact, verse 4 was one of the verses that the Lord showed the kibbutz before the parsons joined in the house. And the three familial families began living together for the specific purpose of working on, guess it. Building the house of God and doing it shoulder to shoulder. So needless to say, this passage of scripture and this chapter as a whole has had tremendous impact on the way our homes and ministry function together. By implication, your homes as well. Absolutely. (laughs) The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Ooh. Can I tell you how happy I am? Verse 5 fell to me. Oh, man. <laughs> Notice that we have a new red dot on the screen. See, this is the section that they're building that is subsequent to the gate. Now, throughout the remaining chapters, you're going to notice that Nehemiah and the workmen are often badgered by external enemies. Yeah. However, the biggest points of contention are always with the existing leadership in Jerusalem. Yikes. In many ways, this is very similar to the ministry of Jesus, particularly as the Gospel of John outlines it. In our minds, some of the shining stars in chapter 3 are the men of Tekoa, because they got it done without the help of their nobles and officials. As we progress through the remaining verses, you'll see the men of Tekoa are not nearly done with all that they will personally accomplish in this great work. Man, verse 6. The Jeshanana gate was repaired by Joyvet son of Pasia, and Meshulam, son of Besodia. Got it. They, they laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Now again, notice that we're starting with the gate, and as you can see on our slide, the red dot indicates the progression they're making. In some of your translations, your Bible may say that they repaired the old gate. That's because the Hebrew noun, or the Hebrew adjective, yeshina, means old. Simply, that's what it means. Let's continue to progress through the building project on the wall. And as we do, take note of the way that the scripture progressively walks around the wall of Jerusalem in a counterclockwise fashion. Verse 7. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah. Wow. Meltadia of yeah. Gibeon and Jadon of Maranon. Places under the authority of the governor of Transubrates. Come on, so next to them, these guys built. This is about where they built right here. Guys, it says men from Gibeon and Mizpah. That means that they traveled all the way here to get shoulder to shoulder with these men and to work with them. You can see all Israel, not just the ones directly living right here, but all of Israel coming together, pulling together to get the work accomplished. Now, we're not certain, but it's definitely a possibility that the governor that is being referenced is that moon god-worshipping Horonite, Sanballat. But in any case, 
These men are journeying from the capital of a Gentile governor to aid in the work in Jerusalem. This decision very well may have been unpopular with their neighbors back home, but they didn't care. They went anyway. Verse 8. Uziel, son of Harariah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, Whoa. made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad, the broad wall. All right, I don't know what a perfume maker is, but I don't know how I'd feel one dude to another dude. Like, hey, what do you do? Can you smell that? And he's like, I'm a contractor. And I'm like, I make aqua de joe perfume. <laughs> But consider what's happening here in the text. We love the way that brothers rally together to accomplish the will of God. And when they do, divisions like occupation, they no longer matter. That's a good word. We have observed that when at war, everyone's occupation becomes a builder and a soldier. (laughs) As you can see, they got it done. Yeah. Those two red dots, that's what a perfume maker and a jewelry guy. That's <laughs> right. Oh. A jeweler. Yeah. 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 Verse yeah. 9 through 11, brother. Rephael, son of Hur, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. But joining this, Jediah, son of Harumah, made repairs yeah. opposite his house. And Hattush, Ooh. son of Hashabinaiah, yeah. made repairs <laughs> next to him. Malkajah, son of Harim, and Hashub, son of Pehath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the other. Yes. Because so that slide's coming on the screen. Two quick notes for you. Remember, every time you see the word next to him, that's literally hand next to hand. Yeah. Or by implication, shoulder next to shoulder. Yes. They built these items. And you'll notice that some of these names are going to repeat. This is not the only time you'll see them. Look how far these guys spread out. Wow. Seen all the green dots all clustered together? Yeah. Well, these guys covered some ground. Yeah, like when they got working, they started building. You may have noticed that we're beginning with the names of rulers of half districts. The word for ruler in Hebrew is sar, which can mean ruler or prince. The point is, the diverse types of leaders within national Israel, they're banding together to close the gaps in the wall. Whether you're a priest, an official, a prince, they're all getting to work. There are officers of different types in this room, and it requires us to work hand-to-hand, shoulder-to-shoulder, to be able to accomplish our task. Let's keep going to verse 12. Shalom, son of Halahesh, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, prepared the next section with the help of his daughters. Ooh. Oh, come on. Come on! Yeah. Man. Sometimes when men are needed, daughters rise up to get the work done with them. You can see what the daughters and their father did right there on the slide. We'd like to point out, first of all, that nobles didn't want to work, but daughters did want to work. That's because they had a daddy who taught them how to work. We would also like to point out that research suggests that among Pastor Matthew Pirro's diverse lineage, this man was probably listed. All kidding aside... Well, we want you to note that this is reminiscent of Philip, who had four daughters that prophesied and joined the ministry with him. Come on, daughters. Let's rise up. Yeah. All right. Verse 13. The valley gate was repaired by Hanum, and the residents of the 
They rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. They also repaired 500 yards of the wall as far as the dumb gate. Yeah, you don't even know until you look at that right there. <laughs> look at that section of the wall. Yeah. Man, when, when, you, when you heard the name Hanun and the residents of Zanoa, you didn't think much, did you? Let's be honest. You're like, ah, oh, Hanun, Zanoa, they probably had another dot on that map. It was pretty cool. They did a good job. No, 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 no. They didn't just repair the sections directly in front of them. They also got up from there. They looked down, saw the, that the wall was still in shambles, and they said, hey, man, let's keep going. Let's go down this wall. Let's build as far as the dung gate to the south. They were not looking for the minimum. No, they were looking for the maximum amount that they could contribute to the work of God. And guys, they accomplished the will of God, and they could hold their heads high because they gave it their all. That large section in red on the screen, the additional 500 yards, that is an impressive section. Guys, on another note, research the Dungate in your own time. It's a funny name. It means exactly what you think that it should mean. But there are all kinds of past events. It's very colorful to go and research the history of this gate. It's got a history of revival, but it also has a history of extreme sin. Figures like Manasseh, Josiah, Ahaz, all of these guys have major events at the Dungate, some very, very good and some very, very bad. Let's continue in verse 14. Come on. The dumb gate was repaired by Malchah, son of Rakab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim. He rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Come on, he's getting it done. Now, Kaja, how was your day, brother? Got it done. <laughs> Look at our slide. We are now south in our narrative. So we're beginning to make our turn in the counterclockwise march around the outer wall. Now you'll notice that the next verses highlight many of the details regarding the work around the lower city or the region just south of the city of David. Verse 15, please. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalom, son of Kol Hose, ruler of the district of Mizpah. Yeah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over, and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. Come on, Tom. He also repaired it. the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's garden as far as the steps going down from the city of David. So saints, as you look at the slide, you're going to see these red dots that are clustered in an area. That's because there's a concentric wall around the pool of Siloam and the king's garden. They're gathering together to complete it. Once again, notice that we have rulers and workmen yeah. that are gathering together to complete the work. Yeah. This yeah. is making a different kind of man in a mixage. Yeah. So you can see on the map how they're working side by side, literally on the corners, to complete and reconstruct this area together. Additionally, you should notice that the fountain gate was re-roofed. Well, this is because the gates were more like guard towers, as we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. It's not just a door, it's an actual building. Yeah. They serve not only as defensive structures, but also as positions for soldiers and leaders in the city. Where did the and, judge, judges sit? Anybody a fan of Proverbs 31? Oh, yeah. To bring you honor at the city gates? Oh, yeah. See, that's what they're talking about. For your own studies, the events of John 9 
and their connection to the pool of Siloam? Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful thing. The work being done right here in Nehemiah 3 by these men is paving the way for the healing of the blind and a testimony of Messiah. A messianic miracle of a man born blind, healed. Well, it happened where Nehemiah and his men rebuilt it. Let's keep going in verse 16. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbu, ruler of a half-district of Bethzur, made repairs up to a point opposite of the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the heroes. So as you can see on the slide, these locations are all on the eastern portion of Jerusalem, right along the Kidron Valley. Their historical significance can be quite astounding when you consider that in Acts 2.29, Peter still knew where David was buried. That's pretty important, is it, for, for Jerusalem and Israel yeah, to yeah. know where David... We don't know where that is today, but Peter knew. The house of heroes is likely comprised of David's mighty fighting men as well as men of similar caliber. They're rebuilding the testimony of the golden era of Israel because they know that the son of David is going to come back and do the same thing. Verse 17. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Rahum, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half-district of Kelia, carried out repairs for his district. Come on. So we have two more sections here. This is going to be the same. So our previous verse, this verse right here, as well as the next six, will be in this eastern section of the wall right here. Guys, it's amazing when you, when you contemplate these men, what a diverse group of leaders yeah. they are. Yeah. I mean, their job descriptions, then Levites, then priests. It's a conglomeration of all of these different leaders, including rulers and other Levites. But what did they do? Any differences that these men had, they put it aside. Any differentiation of opinions, they put it aside for the work of God to be accomplished. They got shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand, and did the work and made sure that it was done. Can we learn anything from their example? Absolutely we can. Let's continue in 18. Next to him, the repairs were made by their countrymen under Benjamin, Son of Hanadad, ruler of the half of the other half district of Kilian. Next to him, Ezra, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle. Mm. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabi, zealously repaired mm. another yeah. section oh, from on. the angle to the entrance of the house of El- Eliashib, the high priest. So anytime a workman among thousands is listed to have gone about the repairs zealously, it's worth emphasizing. Take note. Yeah, this reminded us of Paul's instruction to Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.15 says, Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. If you were to go and build the wall, build the kingdom tonight, and the pastors were leaving, who would rally to us to come build with us? Come on. Who would commit themselves to building zealously? Who would commit themselves to working like they've never worked before in their life? Well, the truth is, we are building the kingdom. And we want your testimony to be that you built zealously. In our own labors, 
Our prayer is that as a body, we may learn what it means to go above and beyond for the work of God. May we be zealous in the repairs like Baruch. Amen. Thanks to him, Merimah, son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, repaired another section from the entrance of Elisha's house to the end of it. Ah, oh, come on. Merimah was not satisfied with one. Merimah, son of Uriah, working next to his brother's got two. Yeah. <laughs> Merimah, son of Uriah, is at it again. He has completed his earlier repairs, and he has looked up after finishing the work on the fish gate. And now he's taken on the repairs near the high priest Eliashib's house. Not because he lives there, but because there's more to get done. He is not satisfied till that's happened. And it is a beautiful thing when men of God are faithful to their allotment and strain and stretch themselves to care for the allotment of their brothers. Give us only two. The repairs next to him were made by the priests from the, from, from the surrounding region. Amen. So this group of priests clearly resides outside of Jerusalem. Yet, they are traveling, they're traveling into Jerusalem to put their shoulders to the load and see the work completed. These groups likely contain members of Jeremiah's family. You remember Jeremiah's from Anathoth? And these are men of Anathoth, as well as other surrounding regions? Can somebody say, one association building project? Come on! Submission Ministries, we are coming for that ministry school. We're going to travel to get it done. Yeah. Verse 23. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashem made repairs in front of their house, and next to them, Azariah, son of Masiah, the son of Anaiah, made repairs beside his house. Wow. Two more sections, two more repairs in this eastern part, in this circle right here. Guys, we're probably still talking about the sides of Eliashib's house and all the surrounding area. But as you can see from this continual image and map that we have here, this is a very large and extensive portion on that eastern wall. And it's not really broken up by anything. Can you guys see that? There's no gates, there's no pools, there's nothing there. So this was extensive work on the eastern side. Let's keep moving. Next to him, Benui, son of Hinnadad, repaired another section. From Azariah's house to the angle and the corner. Wow. So notice that these men are building in the area near Azariah's house. But Azariah is not listed as one of the workmen. Boo. These men are not viewing the work as one man's responsibility, but as their collective responsibility. Consider Paul's take on this mindset in 1 Corinthians 12, 18-26. But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body every one of them just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are, are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, 
every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah will teach you a little bit about putting your brother's needs above your own. Let's move on to verse 45. And Bilal, son of Uzai, worked opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. I realize for some of you this may feel a bit monotonous and you're not sure exactly what we're referring to. But as you're looking at that circle on the right-hand side of the slide, you should have a vivid picture of the amount of repairs that are needed to rebuild the walls. It's a lot of volume. It's a lot of work. This was more than a weekend building project, to say the least. This took some serious muscle, effort, and time. This was a serious and God-ordained undertaking that would take literally an entire band of survivors to finish the work. Before we're moving on, though, you should know that it is likely, and when I say likely, highly likely, that this court of the guard in reference is the same place where Jeremiah was being held in Jeremiah 32, verse 2, and verse 8. So to say the least, God's given them resurrection. The question is, what will they use their freedom for later on? Will there be more prophets in it? Uh-oh. Will there be a place of holiness? So we're going to pick up at the end of verse 25 and read through 26 because it's our next section as the text lays it out. Next to him, Bedaiah, son of Baruch, and the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel made repairs up to a point opposite the water gate toward the east and the projecting tower. So we've made some progress. We're now at the water gate. Continuing in our counterclockwise progression around the outer walls, we have now moved further north and we've reached the water gate. Amen. Now, in your own time, research the meaning of the hill of Ophel. We're not going to tell you exactly what that is, but suffice it to, de- to say, they probably should have sent the perfume makers to that section. <laughs> Let's pick up in verse 27. <laughs> Next to him, the men of Tekoa yeah. repaired another section what? from the great projecting tower to the wall of Ophel. Are you serious? Guys, while we're not big fans of the nobles of Tekoa, and rightly so, we are huge fans of the men of Tekoa. They are remarkable. Guys, they haven't just taken on another section of the wall. They took on the section right by the great projecting tower to the wall of Ophel. Like, the part that nobody else wanted to go to, they said, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go where the Ophel is, and we're going to repair this section. As it's clear in the text, especially in verses like this one, that some men repaired an area assigned to them, which was good. But others, they actually made it a point to do all and everything that they possibly could do. That's the kind of men that we want to be. 28. Above the horse gate, the, pre- the priest made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, hmm. the guard at the east gate, made repairs. So look at where we're at on the map now. We are now beginning to make our ascent back up to where we started. It's worth pointing out that these men live close to where the work began at the sheep gate but had been laboring until the work was brought back around to them. The value of putting the work and our brothers before ourselves, it cannot be overstated. That's right. 
Verse 30. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zelah, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Malchijah, son of one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate and as far as the room above the corner. I told you some of these names would repeat. You see what has been built here? Yeah. We're turning that corner piece where we we're going to reach where they started. Melchizedek took his load and then up. Yeah. This guy was not only a goldsmith who built, he was a goldsmith who built his first section, now the second section, and he's fighting to bring it all the way towards the goal. Yeah. Look, I don't know what you consider yourself. You may not feel like the most astute builder of the kingdom of God, but if you're willing to put your hands to the work, cry out to him to strengthen you in it, he might just give you an allotment beyond what you had when you started. Yeah. He might give you two. Come on. Look, when we're considering this, you need to notice that, again, the repeating refrain is next to him, or hand in hand, all the way to the completion of the work, they're sacrificing right along next to each other. It's inescapable in the original language that this is meant to be envisioned like workmen lined up <coughs> shoulder to shoulder. This is powerful imagery when you're considering that this is the right application of our strength. In Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's move to verse 32. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. So take a look at that slide. We have now made the turn and completed the circle. And they did it hand to hand with one another. They made the turn and completed the circle. They did it together. They had many different functions in the body doing it together. They had priests, they had princes, they had goldsmiths, they had perfume makers, even daughters working together. Man, what a beautiful picture that is. We want to close on a couple concepts for you. First one we'd like to highlight is that as you're reading this chapter, you'll notice that some zealously repaired and others just repaired. What a beautiful thing it is to zealously go to work Come on. on what God is building. Yeah. That word zeal in the Hebrew has to do with a white, burning hot passion. These men just, just weren't satisfied with the status quo. They weren't satisfied with just doing the normal, what everybody else was doing. These men were zealous about their building for the house of God. We need a little bit of that in our souls, don't we? Oh my goodness. There's been many building projects in LCM's history. And you'll notice as you walk on a building project in LCM, some are zealously working, and some are not. It's also indicative of how we kind of play this routine in our body, isn't it? That you see some men zealously building, while others are just happy with the normal status quo of what's going on. I'd like to think that this work did not, would not have been completed without those men who were zealous. But the goal for God is that all men would zealously build the house of God together. That is the goal of God, that our zeal would rise, and we would not just do what's asked of us, we would aim higher than that. And we know that's happening in our body right now. We also want to close on a few concepts that you might not have gotten. We want to share with you some things that you'll learn from learning about the geography of Jerusalem. Nehemiah came to build the security of the city. 
Remember we said that the heart of the nation was established already in the temple? That the soul of the nation had already been revived? But they were lacking one thing. They were lacking security. This is all too often so true in our own lives. That our hearts might be pricked by God. Our hearts are moved by God. Our souls are being stirred up. Now we have to start building security in our lives. Well, this chapter paints us a picture that is so beautiful on how to build security in your life. Because the truth is, is you can have a renewed heart, you can have a renewed soul and not be secure as a Christian, and those things can be tainted again. We have to have security. And Nehemiah shows us how to get it done. You remember we told you that he started with a certain defensive structure. What was that? They started with the gates. They knew that the gates were the entrance and the exit of the city. And therefore, they have to start with that first because there are enemies all around. And if they let one enemy inside the city while they're building, that one enemy can ruin everything like a fly in ointment. What this shows us is that If we want to build security in our lives, in our families, and in this body, we're going to have to start where Nehemiah started. We're going to have to start with the gates to our heart. We're going to have to start by building up the entrances and exits to our very hearts, starting with guarding what comes into our hearts and what comes out of our hearts through our mouths. Come on. See, that's how you start building security in a Christian life. And that's how you start by building security in a family. You start with building, fortifying what goes into the heart of your your body, what goes into your heart and your mind and the heart of your family. And you also start by fortifying what comes out of your heart and the heart of your family. But there's also something very beautiful here. We showed you all of these slides for a reason. Did you notice that they started in kind of the north Northwest area, and they moved counterclockwise? Why would they do that? Why would they start in that specific area? Good question. Well, something you need to know about the geography of Jerusalem and the history of Jerusalem. We want to show you our next slide. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I'm willing to take a stab at that the reason why they started in this area is because that's the area where the Babylonians attacked first. You see, the Babylonians had to come south from the north, and this is the direction of the Babylonian attack. What kind of message does that speak about your security? You want to secure your heart? You want to secure your calling? You want to secure your family? Start where the enemy last attacked you and begin to fortify that area. The enemy is attacking you in fear. That's where you start fortifying in fear. You start fortifying around where the enemy is attacking you the most. Struggling with anxiety. That's where you need to start fortifying. That's the area of your heart, the area of your soul that is the most prone to being attacked by the enemy. You could see that they did this. They learned their lesson in saying, hey, this is where the enemy attacked us last time. We're not going to let him do it again. We're going to fortify the area that they last attacked, and we're going to make it strong. So at this point, Pastor Nick, we're going to work us through one last slide. But in everything that you heard Justin just say, make sure that you take away 
what had previously destroyed them are these three points of attack from Babylon. These gates are what fell in their lives and destroyed their families. So when Nehemiah is building on a renewed heart, a renewed soul, he starts at the beginning point of the Babylonian attack and makes sure that it is strong and his family will never fall to that again. Men of God, I hope you take that away from this evening. Pastor Nick, would you work us through another slide? This is our last slide of the evening. It's a picture of Solomon's temple. It's a little bit different from the tabernacle, and we wanted to make sure that we showed you what Solomon's temple looked like structurally. Because you see at the top right corner there where the altar is? Guys, that is exactly the place that the Word of God started with the building tonight. Right there by the altar. As we're going we're gonna to end with this concept of our hearts tonight. Justin did a fantastic job talking about, hey, the last place that the enemy struck you, that he attacked you, that is where you need to begin to fortify and protect. Amen. Where these men started building was right here where the sacrifices occurred. As what if we started examining our own sacrifices and we started building rightly right where we sacrificed? Evaluating what these sacrifices look like. Evaluating what we're spending those sacrifices on. Making sure that they're pointed rightly at God's kingdom work. And then we start fortifying those areas and are able to move out from that point. The major emphasis of these chapters, and especially this last one, are these men that didn't just do the bare minimum. They didn't just build what was right in front of them. They did everything that they could to finish the work that was put in front of them, lift up their faces, lift up their eyes and say, what more can I do to sow into God's kingdom work? What more can I do to secure my brothers in their kingdom work? How can I get shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, hand in hand with them and get with them to finish the work? Not one of us, not three of us, not a small contingent of us can finish God's kingdom work. As you responded well tonight when we asked you about how these men felt during their work. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that we're in the same position right here and right now. There was a hundred years where God had this plan. This wall is going to be built. This is what's going to happen. And I'm going to wait patiently until I can see this happen. Wait on my timing. Guys, we have waited on God's timing and it's time to build his kingdom. We're standing in the midst of God's building project. And we're calling out to you, stand up, men of God. Stand up, families of God. And put your shoulder to the work along with us. Beth, would you put up Ezekiel 44 and verse 5? These are such powerful nights. And you get to hear my response and Pastor Matt's response as we've been sitting and listening just like you have. First response, first thoughts of what is going on inside of us. I was moved and reminded of what the sons of Zadok were given in Ezekiel 44. 
See, what you've been given tonight is not just a, uh, a practical, not only a practical guide, but you've been given a supernatural pathway to building. You've been given something that is far more heavenly and strategic than you can possibly imagine. Look what it says in Ezekiel 44, 5. The Lord said to me, speaking to Ezekiel, Son of man, look carefully with your eyes. Listen closely with your ears. Haven't they done that for us tonight? Given you to actually look carefully with your eyes at what, a building, what the building project was. Yes. Listening closely with your ears. Give attention with your heart to everything I tell you. Concerning all the regulations. All the instructions regarding the temple of the Lord. Give attention with your heart to the entrance to the temple. And all the exits of the sanctuary. Ezekiel is having a supernatural encounter. And what God is telling Ezekiel is exactly what you see Nehemiah and the men of his day actually carrying out. They are looking. They have to give attention, full attention with their heart to the entrances and the exits. Those things, the places that, of what we are allowing into our lives and are what are flowing out. Supposed to be places of strength, but are oftentimes places of weakness and former attack. Church, this is a perfect time for us as a, as a body of believers. To give, to look carefully with our eyes, to listen carefully with our ears, to give attention to our heart, with our heart, to the entrances and the exits of what you have been building so that we might accomplish everything that God has for us and that we might do it together. So do we have some kingdom builders in this house? Yes. yes. Do we have some zealous kingdom builders in this house? Yes. I don't know. Maybe it's like this year God's given us a directive to have the body build itself up in love. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way that the Lord is constantly equipping us to have precision a how to build itself up in life. Did you get a better idea of the importance of a gate of a city? And also a visual example of where to begin to fortify first. Right? God's been highlighting so many things that in the past have truly eaten our lunch or devoured yeah. our walls. <laughs> what we're going to replace those past elements with is the same thing that devoured the heart of Jesus himself. Zeal for your house consumes me. Zeal for his house is what consumes me. Man, we want to see his kingdom on earth, right here and right now. And that starts with looking at and participating in LCM's mezuzah. One life, one family, one nation at a time. But I want to narrow it down just a little more specific. In Psalm 141, something that's really great. Starting in verse 2, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. 
and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Man, that's what we look to do. Is that out of our mouths comes praise that is worthy to be received by God himself. And the lifting up of our hands as an acceptable sacrifice. Verse 3, though, it gives us a clear directive of how to do that. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. So much like the imagery of what we've seen throughout the entirety of tonight, of fortifying and guarding the entrances and exits of the city. Ultimately, all of those things were protecting the temple itself and the people that dwell within the walls. I want you to also walk away with a very clear understanding of guarding your speech. Guard what you consume and guard what comes out. It'll guard the center of you as the image of God's temple. And don't let anything defile your heart by constantly regurgitating stuff that doesn't come from God. Amen. Here we go. Get rid of all the contaminants. Kick Sam Ballot to the curb. Come yeah. on. Yeah. To knock upside the head, Tobiah. Oh. Get that Arab back out of town. Put him in the desert where he belongs. <laughs> all of this faithless speech that goes on inside of us. Are you guys getting a clearer idea of just how deeply rooted fear and anxiety is? And we're gaining ground of uprooting it and getting the hell out of our temple? So look, as we pray, let your confidence rise that we're doing this together as a body. It's one house joining another. And if you have success in conquering a specific fear, anxiety, whatever contaminant may be, Don't sit back on your lounge chair and say, I'm done. Zealously, get back up on your feet and help your brothers do the same. Lentonius Maximus, why don't you close us out in prayer? Mighty God, we thank you, Father. God, that you have put your word in our hearts, mighty God. Father, we thank you for filling us with zeal, God, to complete this work, Father. First starting in our own hearts and in our own gates, Father, but not stopping there and moving to our brothers, mighty God. Lord God, fill us with the fire, God, that we would jealously, God, build up the walls all the way back to Jerusalem. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.